KBLA Talk 1580. Mm, 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 I love that song. Such an important thing to remember. Yes, I'm blessed. And I'm blessed to be here with you every single day. If you missed a show, bless us with your presence on in the podcast space. Find us. If you missed the entire conversation, for example, this morning with Dr. Joy DeGru, you can found it you can find it on YouTube uh, where we stream every day. You can also find it wherever you get your podcast and it is free, free, free. Our podcasts are free. You can find them on Spotify, on Apple Music. Just type in my name, type in the name of the guest or type in KBLA 1580. Or best of all, you could get the app that helps you and us because you can listen to KBLA on your phone wherever you go. But you can also help the world know that there's a lot of folks listening and a lot of folks standing with unapologetically progressive KBLA Talk 1580. Deep dive today with an educator and a curator uh, who studies art objects that reflect transnational and transcultural histories, especially the ones that speak to racial and ethnic inclusion, exile and migration, and gender discrimination across the Americas throughout the 20th century. Um, she's a curator. She's contributed to museum exhibitions in the United States and abroad, including the Art Institute of Chicago, the Milwaukee Art Museum, and Tate Britain. Most recently, she served as one of the three co-curators for the exhibition and award-winning publication Life Magazine and The Power of Photography, which debuted at the Princeton University Art Museum back in 2020. Alisa Shapiro, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Dominique. Yeah, well, we started off our day with, well, not somewhere in the middle of our day, we started talking about uh, this idea uh, of, you know, feeling exclusion and migration. And Dr. Joy DeGruy was here talking about forced displacement and how all of these things, you know, impact us as human beings, as um, psychologically, physically, uh, you know, as organisms. Um, And processing that or healing from that or even understanding that um, is part of the function of art. I mean, I'm assuming that's what you think. That's what I think. Talk to me about that. Oh, I absolutely agree. It's one of the reasons why I've, I've committed my life to the sort of work that I do as an art historian. Um, I, I firmly believe that in order to, to move toward a better and more equitable future, we need to understand the past and we need to be inspired by the past, even um, the more challenging moments from the past. And I think that art as a creative medium, one that can speak to people's hearts and souls, in addition to history books and, and oral history testimonies and, and other sorts of forms of communication, I feel like the arts is always one um, that, can, that can get to people in different ways. And as a museum curator, I think it's our role to help inspire and to help teach um, so that we can all do what we can to, to make the world a little bit better every day. That's funny because my dad, Amiri Baraka, the late Amiri Baraka, a.k.a. Leroy Jones, was is known as the founder of the Black Arts Movement. And growing up, he taught me that all art is political. It's all saying something so that it's better to be conscious of what you're saying 
than just be random or, or be um, unintentionally saying something that you don't want to put forth. But I think when we look at like photography, in, we, we think of it as somehow more objective than other art. Yeah, it, it's a great point. It's as if it gives you sort of an unmediated experience because it's using the technology of the camera. But as, as photo historians have been arguing since photography came into being um, in, in the 1830s, that it's clearly there are so many choices that are made by photographers um, in terms of the moment that they capture. And then when thinking about photojournalism and much of the curatorial work that I've done and related to my current exhibition right now at the Skirball Cultural Center, this light of ours, activist photographers of the civil rights movement, when I, when I show people these exhibitions and I think about photojournalism, I remind them of how many choices are being made. So the moment when a photographer decides to click the shutter to capture an image, and then the individual who's looking through all of these hundreds of frames of film and decides which ones should get printed in a dark room. And then the photo editors or the individuals at different organizations saying, okay, this is the image. This is the one that we want to publish or circulate to the masses. Um, and then understanding which ones also continue to resonate and have this co continual cultural meaning and, and form of iconicity. So this idea that there are so many choices built within, I think, is, is crucially important when we think about photographs, not as just a direct reflection of the world around, but a series of choices to help tell stories. Yeah, I think that's that's right. That's why certain people, celebrities or whatever, they have photo approval. That's why, and I and we forget, you know, a picture looks totally different depending on what's cropped out and what stays in, what stays in Absolutely. the image and what gets omitted or edited. Um, and... I, I, honestly, that we think of photography as some sort of, you know, um, science rather than an art, but really it is an art. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I know it. I can just talk about it anecdotally. Um, when I started studying the history of photography back when I was an undergrad in college, I took a studio photography class to better understand the sort of intricacies of the medium. And I learned very quickly that I am not a professional photographer. Um, while I can also point and snap on, on my iPhone or even using a fancy DSLR camera, um, it really takes an eye. And, and in, the, in the instance of the exhibition that I most recently curated, thinking about what photographers, the situations that they put themselves in, put themselves in to photograph some of the most turbulent um, and challenging times in history is way beyond what I could do from an aesthetic level and, and takes a form of, of bravery and conscious that is, is really extraordinary and I think often gets kind of lost when thinking about the various photographic chronicles of, of moments in time. Yeah, and, uh, the, and, and it's amazing how some of those moments in time have been actually changed by a picture. We'll talk about that and these more than 150 uh, or at least 150 folks, artists that are um, 
whose work is part of this exhibition that's going on at the Skirball Center. It's KBLA Talk 1580. A safe place to go loud. loud, loud. A great place for progressive politics. KBLA Talk 1580. Thanks for waking up with Dominique DePrima on KBLA Talk 1580. Do appreciate you and you're always welcome into the conversation. 800-920-1580. We're talking with Elisa Shapiro, an educator and curator um, and uh, she's got a show right now at Skirball Cultural Center. For those who haven't been, the Skirball Cultural Center offers all kinds of uh, programming from art to actual uh, music, all kinds of things going on there. They have a thing called Noah's Ark that's always there. It's kind of uh, fun to see, a family thing to see. Um, so if you haven't been, it's a beautiful space, um, and... This particular piece, um, This Light of Ours, is featuring photographers who captured the civil rights movement, and there are many of them, right? Yes, exactly. So while there were tons of civil rights photographers during the 1960s, most of them were associated with picture magazines and newspapers, Think of everything from the New York Times to, to Life Magazine or Look Magazine. Um, but this exhibition actually focuses on photographers who are a little bit different. And because they're a little bit different, they present a different side of the civil rights movement that many people, myself included, who've been doing this sort of research for a very long time, haven't always seen. And so the exhibition, this slide of ours, Activist Photographers of the Civil Rights Movement, looks at nine photographers who actually were members of the movement itself. They lived inside the movement, working every day with activists. So they themselves were really committed in, in every way possible to the cause of the Southern Freedom Movement or the Civil Rights Movement. And of this group of nine photographers, the majority of them were actually members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, most famously run by John Lewis. Right, Snick. Um, actually, the the... The exhibition opens uh, November 9th, so it's coming up soon, but it'll be around through February. But when you when you said it's an interesting distinction because, you know, you have the press whose job is to supposedly be objective, which I'm not I, I don't believe there's such a thing as objectivity. I think there's fairness, but we can only see the world through our own eyes. Um, and the, but but you're making this distinction of going to people who are part of the movement, and clearly they're going to see it differently. What is that difference as you as you experience it? Absolutely, and actually, the show's already open, so I hope people come. Oh, uh, okay. It says Saturday. November 9th on the um, <laughs> on the website, but okay, it's open now. Oh, well, I can't, well, I can't I wait to go that see everyone it. Everyone comes. Before that, it, it has a nice long run, which I'm yeah. excited about. Yeah, but it's open so now, which is insider, great. Mm -hmm. Yes. This, this insider-outsider sort of perspective is one that, that, that helps us think about the choices that photographers made and the experiences that they had. So for a lot of photojournalists who were attached to these larger publications, many of them lived in the North and would just go down to the South to photograph a march in Mississippi or Alabama or um, a, an event where they were trying to SNCC or other civil rights organizations were trying to help Black Americans in the South register to vote. And then they would leave, which is very different than the nine photographers we highlight 
who really made this part of their everyday life. And what I find so interesting is of these nine photographers, some of them weren't actually professional photographers. And it wasn't until they became part of the civil rights movement that their careers as as photographers began. And one example of that is a young man named Tanya Wakayama, who's a Japanese-Canadian photographer. He grew up and was actually born in an incarceration camp during World War II in Canada following the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor. And as a young adult living in Canada, he was reading reports about what was happening to Black Americans in the South, and he decided that he needed to be there to help in any way he could. So he came South and and met with members of SNCC and said, what can I do? And they gave him a camera and realized the skill he had with the camera. Some of my favorite photographs, we have over 150 photographs in the exhibition, and some of my favorite photographs are the ones taken by Tamiyo Wakayama. And from that experience, he became a professional photographer and photographed for the rest of his career. And the photographs that he took were not the ones, and, and the other, the all of the nine photographers, didn't necessarily just focus on the leaders of the movement. Of course, they photographed Dr. King and Fannie Lou Hamer, and John Lewis, and Stokely Carmichael, and and other leaders of the movement. But they also photographed the people that they were interfacing with and collaborating with every single day. And those were the organizers on the ground. Those were members of the Black communities in the South who were doing this sort of grassroots work every single day, as well as the, the countless volunteers, many of whom were minorities, who came down to the South uh, at times like the 1964 Mississippi Freedom Summer and said, what can we do? How can we help our our fellow Black Americans and, and citizens in the South? And so the chronicle that these activist photographers created, understanding that they were part of history in, in, in the process, was to photograph the people that they really got to know on an intimate and everyday level, which is very different than these professional photojournalists popping in for an hour or a day. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting, too, that, you know, you make the distinction that these folks either worked uh, with the movement uh, as, you know, or were dedicated to it in various ways. But a lot of these folks are not black. I mean, you only have a couple of black photographers in this exhibition. Yeah. So of the nine photographers, we have two black photographers, both from the North. We have Bob Fletcher and Herbert Randall. And Herbert Randall was a black and Native American photographer. And actually in the diversity and in the makeup and the backgrounds and perspectives of the nine photographers actually serves as sort of a microcosm for the movement itself. And thinking about, particularly within in SNCC, the large and inclusive coalition that was central to to the movement and to their activities. So the nine photographers are Bob Edelman, who is a, a Jewish man, a Jewish photographer, uh, George Elfie Bayless, Bob Fitch. Bob Fitch was a white minister born actually in Los Angeles. Bob Fletcher, Matt Heron, um, a white man also um, who spent a lot of time in California, who's actually the original curator of the exhibition. David Prince, who is a young Black student from the North who went down. Herbert Randall, who I mentioned. Maria Varela, a Mexican-American photographer. And then Tamio Wakayama, who's a Japanese-Canadian photographer. So in their own experiences and lives that they brought 
to photographing the movement and particularly within SNCC, you see that they exemplify the, the, the inclusive coalition that was one of the most inspiring parts of the civil rights movement and is the thing that I keep taking as one of my central takeaways from this exhibition is that this is the model of allyship that is honest and authentic and powerful. And it's the one that we need to learn from and, and include in our own lives today. When you say learn from, like, what, give me an example of a takeaway um, around allyship that you would, um, that you bring forth from this, uh, you know, work. Sure. I, I think that allyship is a continual process. It's not a one day showing up type of thing. It's not a one day showing up and marching alongside the people who are fighting for their lives and rights and freedoms. It's a continual process of really engaging and getting to know individuals across the spectrum of society and life and, and really living with them in certain ways, getting to know their families, understanding their stories, and making a coalition that is built on extraordinary mutual understanding and trust. And for so many of the volunteers and many white volunteers, and so the Skirball Cultural Center is a Jewish cultural center. I'm Jewish myself. And, and for me personally, in looking at Bob Edelman as a Jewish photographer and all of the many Jewish individuals who are photographed in these 150 plus images in our exhibition, to see the young and old Jewish individuals from across the country going south and saying to the black leaders of these organizations, what can I do? How can I be of service to you? Whether it's, it's being part of a march or going down and spending the summer in Mississippi and helping um, black Americans register to vote when so many different obstacles were put in, in their way from doing so. So that, that's the thing that inspires me. And there's, there's one photograph in particular um, that I that will stay with me forever, and it's a photograph by Herbert Randall, who's the Black and Native American photographer. And, and we wanted to make sure that we heard the voices of these photographers throughout the exhibition. So we have these audio stops where we have headphones. It's also accessible through our brand new Bloomberg Connect app. Um, that we can hear the photographers when eight of the nine photographers were recorded in 2011 talking about some of these photographs. And we hear Herbert Randall talking about his experience of photographing an older Jewish rabbi from Cleveland, from Cleveland named Arthur Lelleveld, um, who was in Mississippi for Mississippi Freedom Summer in 1964, who, while helping Black Americans register to vote, was, was brutally attacked by white supremacist vigilantes and beaten um, and like very violently uh, with a tire iron. And Herbert Randall, the photographer, was in a car and he saw, and as he talked about it, he saw the rabbi bleeding profusely from his head. So he ran out to try to help this rabbi staunch the bleeding. And Rabbi Lelleveld looked up at him and said, photographer, take the picture. Understanding how important it was to document what was happening to civil rights workers and particularly civil rights workers who were not black to have those photographs circulate and say and and maybe impact other communities because unfortunately during that time and we see that horribly even today that oftentimes when black americans are brutalized the media doesn't cover it but you have someone in a position of power and authority in this 
this well-known older um, white presenting rabbi who's been attacked and and being able to show that, you know, this is a problem that affects every single one of us is, is a moment of, of connection and collaboration. The way that Herbert Randall tells that story and we have the photograph in the exhibition is something that um, has really spoken to me and, and will leave a lasting impression. Yeah, it certainly sounds like, um, it, you know, documentation also of the longstanding um, alliances that have happened, particularly in this country around racism and white supremacy between uh, black Americans and Jewish American communities um, in documenting that piece of the civil rights movement. When we come forward, I want to talk about some of these iconic images that change the narrative. It's KBLA Talk 1580. More of First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. Heard any other talk radio lately that sounds anything like this? We didn't think so. You're listening to Unapologetically Progressive, KBLA Talk 1580. And the exhibition is called This Light of Ours, Activist Photographers of the Civil Rights Movement. You can get all the information at skirball.org. It's S-K-I-R. B-A-L-L, skirball.org. Find out about the exhibition going on now through February. Um, the curator, uh, she's an educator as well. Elisa Shapiro is with us. She urges you to go now. Don't wait till Black History Month. <laughs> go see it right <laughs> now. Um, and, you know, you mentioned um, one photograph that really stuck with you. I'm looking at the bio of one of the artists that's featured here, Matt Heron, um, who is one of the um, photojournalists who did both. He was working with SNCC, but he was also working with Time Magazine and Life Magazine and such. And one of his photos, which is um, a police officer trying to um, grab an American flag out of the hand of a black child, made a lot of waves, got... Um, got um, awarded one of the top photography prizes, right? But those kinds of moments captured by photographers have really changed the course of many a news story and many a public attitude, haven't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and Matt Heron's a really interesting example, as you said, who did both working for these larger publications. But for him, the, the work that really spoke to his soul and the work that ended up becoming um, a book called The Eyes of Mississippi that, that he put together were his civil rights photographs. And he actually was the curator of the exhibition. So a little, a little background on the exhibition itself. It was actually originally organized by an organization called the Center for Documentary Expression and Art in Utah. And Matt Heron was brought in as one of the photographers to, but to be the curator. And so he was the one who actually chose the other eight photographers to be featured in the exhibition. And he selected every single one of the 157 black and white photographs in, in the project and even ordered them. Um, so when we, when we got the show, and so after it was organized at the Center for Documentary Expression and Art, it went to the Malt Museum of Jewish Heritage in Cleveland, Ohio, and they added to the exhibition. So it's these two entities that have been circulating the show and that we brought to the skirball. And then, as we say, we skirballized it. We added a bunch of new objects and different content 
and different sorts of experiences. So Matt Heron is just a really interesting example because he really was kind of a maverick in the way that he took photographs and presented photographs. And as you say, that that one photograph is one that went on to win all of these awards for Matt Heron and kind of pushed him to continue doing this work for his whole life. And, and something that he really wanted to combat when, when curating this exhibition was he didn't just want to focus on these photographs that have become iconic and these photographs of, of violence against the Black communities in the South and Black protesters, even though that was critically important in raising awareness for what was happening. But he also really wanted to ensure that this exhibition showed a different side of the movement and showed the dignity and resourcefulness and the pride of Black communities in the South. And actually, the first section of the exhibition is called Black Life, What We Saw, and and tries to combat this idea that all that existed um, for Black communities in the South was pain and really emphasizing the beauty. One of my favorite photographs in the show is of this older black woman who you can, who's laughing and you can almost hear her laughter through the photograph and making sure that it's not, not just what we remember of the civil rights movement is not just extraordinary violence um, or these moments of great success, like the 1965 passage of the voting rights act, but also of the individuals who made up the movement, who committed every day of their lives to the movement, and really the beauties of their the beauty of their lives and, and photographs of them that show just how how strong and resilient and passionate they were to to make this really their life's work. Mm. Yeah, it's an important point that we still struggle with today, just not only showing, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, or yes, you know, uh, now I'm Simone Biles and I'm the most decorated of all time. Well, what about everyday life? What about uh, the the regular everyday humanity that we fight for and that we, um, that's the reason why we keep going? Uh, let's go to Morris calling us from Inglewood. Hi, Morris. You're on with Elisa Shapiro on KBLA Talk 1580. Hey, good morning, ladies. Uh, you know, I do believe that a picture can say a thousand words. And there's one photograph of a young lady at Kent State who was on her knees after one of her uh, friends, a student, had been shot and uh, killed by the armed forces there. They were just simply protesting the Vietnam War. And to see this young lady on her knees crying, exercising their First Amendment rights. I'm an old man, and I still remember that. Mm. Yeah, um, I mean, it's kind of what we were talking about prior, um, those impactful images. Uh, do you remember or have, have you seen the, um, the photo that Morris is talking about? Oh, yes, I know it well. It, it has become incredibly iconic. And it's one that, you know, I've actually studied in art history classes. And it, it, it kind of resonates with the, the, the structure of a pieta, of the, the biblical um, positioning of, of Mary cradling her, her son, Christ, after he's been crucified. And it, there are many reasons why photographs become iconic. And there, there's, there are many great historians who work on this on this subject of iconicity and photography. Um, and 
Robert Harriman and John Luke Cates do it better than everyone. And, and, and they've written about this photograph and its power and impact. And not only in that sort of perfect moment of what, what the famous French photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson called the decisive moment, that, that perfect dot that a photographer takes, but, but this one being so evocative of this woman crying in pain while, while seriously just, just peacefully protesting the Vietnam War. And so it's that, that moment that's captured and then how the image circulates and gets repeated time and time again in these different spaces. And, and I've been thinking about iconicity a lot, um, really since 2020, with, with the murder of George Floyd and the photographs of the protests that happened after his murder, and, and thinking about which images have become the ones that are the kind of lasting chronicle. And there's one um, Associated Press photograph that really spoke to me of a young black man wearing a mask at the time of COVID and holding um, an American flag upside down as he's, he's walking past buildings that are on fire in the background. And you even have the, the telephone poles on fire. Like the, the, the process of communication is literally burning. Um, and it's a photograph, extraordinary powerful photograph that I saw in one week used by Fox News, used by CNN, used by the New York Times, and used in all of these different contexts that really just take this photograph and, and em employed it for whatever kind of ideological aims or very specific to, to, to push one narrative or another. And so the kind of mutability of photography, the way that one image can can be used to to advocate for very different things to me is fascinating as a sort of sociological and political study of how these images are used and by whom. Well, yeah, and then you can layer on top of that the fact that we have all these deep fakes now. Every time I see something startling or remarkable right now, if it's a photo, I the first thing I try to do is figure out if it's a real picture or, not, or an actual uh, situation or something someone generated. Oh, uh, same, same. These these AI photographs are incredibly challenging, especially for those who work in the field that I do. When we when authenticity is so important to what we do, and and uh, that is so small relative to people in your line of work who are who are presenting the news. And trying to make sure that your your listeners or or watchers or readers are are seeing things that that are real and and the prevalence of these sorts of fakes is something that I think we're going to have to grapple with for a very long time. And it's not to say that again that photographs are all authentic. There's been manipulation in photography since the beginning of the media. Mm, yeah. Um, but now it's so easy to make these fakes and and when when photographs are, are seen as definitive proof, the idea that something can be faked um, really, it is really, really scary when it comes to our sort of democratic values and processes. Yeah, faked and put in different context. I mean, a great, a great example, um, I guess last week and the week before, this photo of, of uh, Biden on the beach has been going viral and everyone's saying, you know, the world is on fire and he's on the beach. Well, that photo was taken in August and... Right. Too late. The damage is done, right? Um, 
So it's it's the image and whether it's a real image, but as you s- state about that Black Lives Matter uh, photo, it's also the context, right? Yep. Yeah, very much so. And and I, I think that one, as another plug for the importance of, of studying art and visiting museums, I think really looking closely at, at art objects and the history of art and seeing seeing works in person rather than just on your screen helps build this visual literacy and can can help people realize when things might not be authentic. Mm. And, and to figure out what questions to ask to say, okay, do we think that this was taken out of context or was completely faked? And that, that sort of visual literacy is something that we all need to be brushing up on all the time. I, I, I I taught at Northwestern University. I, I taught um, undergraduates in art history. And my my pitch to them always when they came from different disciplines was, I am teaching you here, we are teaching you here how to be really close lookers. And it's something that you will need and will benefit you for your life. And I think that sort of visual literacy is more important today than it's ever been. Yes, indeed. Alicia Shapiro is our guest. Uh, she's got a show right now at the Skirball Cultural Center, and you're invited. And we'll find out, you know, how you can go and when to go and what to do when you get there. Uh, <laughs> that's next. That and more on KBLA Talk 1580. She's reclaiming her time on KBLA Talk 1580. More First Things First with Dominic DePrima when we come forward. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where hate loses and love wins. And um, we are talking with Alisa Shapiro, educator and a curator. This light of ours, photojournalism of the civil rights movement, going on right now, right now at the Skirball Cultural Center. If you haven't been there yet, uh, if they haven't, uh, I've been there many a time. Um, What do you want them to know? I want them to know that it is a warm and welcoming space for everyone. We have a variety of exhibitions that are on view. We have our our permanent exhibition that looks at the history of Jewish life and culture. And we have three temporary shows up right now. So in addition to this light of ours, activist photographers of the civil rights movement, we have a brilliant show up. Um, called The American Library by Yinka Shonabare. Yinka Shonabare is a British-Nigerian artist who created this library of books that are wrapped in Dutch wax fabric that have on the spine of the book the names of first and second generation immigrants to this country, um, as well as the names of many Black Americans who came north during the Great Migration. And it's an exhibition that is aesthetically beautiful and also asks questions about American identity and pluralism and, and how this con- country came to be. And there are opportunities for our visitors to write in their own immigrant stories um, and stories of migration within this country. And so that that's a show that I couldn't highly recommend anymore. And then our third show that's up right now is another show that I curated called Reclaimed, A Family Painting, that looks at the history of Nazi looted art through the experiences of one Jewish family based here in Los Angeles that spent over 80 years trying to get back one beloved painting from their family's collection. And so that's from the museum side. That's what we do. And then we have countless incredible programs, music programs, lectures, classes, classes, 
Um, we have spaces to eat. We have a great restaurant. Um, and then we have Noah's Ark, which is our children's exhibition that uses, um, that has all of these animals created from recycled materials. It's super interactive. It's amazing for kids. When I, when I first took the job as um, a curator at the Skirball, all of my friends were very excited, um, those who had kids, because they, they thought I could get them in and, and get them sneaky access to Noah's Ark, which is really like it's one of my favorite places in the museum. I try to pop down as much as I can. So there's something for everyone um, from different generations, from all backgrounds and lived experiences. And we're, we're just really a warm and welcoming and beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. Um, it is beautiful and, and peaceful. Yeah, it's a beautiful, peaceful place. Right off the 405, once you get through that traffic, uh, <laughs> you will be glad right. <laughs> you you went there. Um, talk to me about what you are hoping, uh, what you're hoping to set off, stimulate, or set in motion with this particular exhibition about these uh, activist photographers of the civil rights movement? Yeah, I, I love that question because we, we don't just do the work as curators to, to think about moments in history, but it's, it's really to ask the questions of what we can learn from them. And, and for me, and what we really try to emphasize in this exhibition is the fact that there's still so much more work to be done and more work to be done in the tradition of the civil rights movement and in particular SNCC. And one of the, the central activities that SNCC was involved with um, throughout the 1960s was voting rights activism. And as we come upon uh, a major election in 2024, another presidential election, it's more important than ever for us all to continue the work of making voting accessible to all, as is the constitutional right for all Americans. And so the final section of the exhibition, after we, we go through all of the historical photographs and various other archival objects that we added to the exhibition, the final section is called Unfinished Business. And it really looks at the 2013 Shelby County v. Holder Supreme Court decision that eliminated so many critical protections against um, discrimination and voting rights that were promised by the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the rollback of all of those sorts of protections that have made particularly immigrant populations um, and populations of color and, and others in the country that are the most vulnerable has, has stripped them of the right to vote or made voting so much harder. Um, and so we need to follow the lead of, of SNCC and the civil rights movement more generally and ensure that their sacrifices were not in vain as we rebuild those protections. Yeah, it's 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 really telling. I think that they stuck uh, cameras in people's hands and 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 recruited photographers. You one of the conversations I'm hearing now is that so many of those photos and images of the civil rights era and even the modern movement are owned by various agencies whose job is to make money off of photos, and then at a certain point. If you don't have access to those images, what is that? How does that impact our ability to tell our stories? It's a great point and and so accurate. Um, and it's the reason why you know the muse museums do what we do, right? Because if it's harder to access those images and publish those images because of all image rights 
permissions and the like, something I know, unfortunately, all too well. Um, we have a museum as part of our role and responsibility to ensure that, that people can see this history as it was visualized during the time. And the, the, we, we added a number of things at the Skirball to the exhibition. And I think what I'm most proud of um, is a final installation called Activism Today, where we highlight a bunch of local and national organizations that are at the forefront of voting rights activism today. And we, we got in touch with all of them and we, we looked at the kinds of graphics that they use, the photographs, the posters um, as part of their activities. And we see such a resonance with the kind of aesthetics that SNCC and the civil rights movement itself made popular and to see how those organizations are ensuring that they're using photographs in really creative ways to help tell these stories and to connect us to the the fight for, for freedom during the civil rights movement. So you see at the, the end of our exhibition, some of these graphics from organizations like the League of Women Voters, mm. which has an amazing photograph of a white and black woman marching together from the 1960s. Or the Andrew Goodman Foundation. Andrew Goodman was a young um, Jewish New Yorker who was murdered in Mississippi alongside Black Mississippian James Cheney and another Jewish New Yorker, Mickey Schwerner. And in his foundation, started in his memory by his parents, they used some of the photographs of, of Andrew Goodman from the 1960s when he was in Mississippi. So you see that these organizations are working in such a smart way. And then one of my favorite posters in that final section of the exhibition is made by an artist named Eric Oliver, who's working for the NAACP, who created the series of thinking about martyrs from the civil rights movement and has um, a graphic of Medgar Evers and has a graphic of Taney, Goodman and Schwerner and has a graphic of the four little girls who were killed in the Birmingham church bombing. And so that reuse of those sorts of images by activists and activist organizations, um, to me is really inspiring. And then we, we, we call to our visitors and we say to them, look at all these organizations that are right in your backyard and accessible throughout the country. It's now your time and get involved. And we provide those resources to get involved. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Shapiro, for being with me today. And, and uh, I encourage everyone to go. I'm encouraging myself to go. And you can find out more at skirball.org. Appreciate you. And I'll just say that on November 9th, um, our, our tours start of the exhibition. So if you want to have someone walk you through the show, you can, you can go to that starting on November 9th. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Uh, Tavis Smiley's up next. The best of Tavis Smiley because it is Friday. I'll see you on social media. History is now, and we are making it together until Monday. One love.